Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Hello. Hi. How are you? It's good. I feel like, you know, it's been like a week and a half since the CrossFit Open finished, and I feel like I'm finally recovered. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That last workout was... um, Actually, it's funny because for me, it was like bookends, like the first two workout, the first workout and the last workout were the ones that were like, well, actually, it was like the last two. There was a, there was three out of those five that were like crazy intense workouts for me Four. there was four. All of the workouts were you're, really you're, intense. You're losing the, you know, that <laughs> losing you the thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think that so the last workout was. um thrusters and double unders and it was funny because i kept saying oh, i think we haven't had thrusters or double unders yet that it's gonna be a couple of thrusters and double unders and everyone's like oh no i think there'll be running muscle ups in there like oh no oh i think it'll be triple unders like everyone had their own like what you know what this is going to be um but i you know i'm just starting to be able to do double unders like it's i can string a few together i can you know do a double under with a single in between and then string a bunch together that way but they're not easy for me like you look at the elite athletes and they just they're like tra la 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 and they they just they're like it's like they're barely moving and this ropes ropes just like whipping around their bodies of its own fruition like it's a it's like a very different experience from how hard i have to work to get a rope to go under my feet twice in one jump um but I, so I decided I, I really wanted to try an RX it. There was a 40 minute time cap and I would basically just go until I ran out of double unders or hit the cap. Um, because the most I've ever done in a day before is a hundred and that was brutal and it destroyed me. So I figured, you know, maybe I'll get through like three or four rounds. If I get to five rounds, I'll be like super excited. And my coach gave me this. I, I think she went into it thinking like maybe me RXing that workout was not the best choice. Um, but she didn't want to tell me to do it scaled. So instead she said like, this is a really intense workout. It's going to destroy people. This is the kind of workout that's going to give people rhabdo. I'm not going to let you do this. If this gets ugly, if this gets ugly, we are stopping. And I was like, fair enough. Like, stop me. Like I, you know, my whole, um, my whole perspective going into the open this year was, you know, I, I need to take it all with a grain of th- salt because I have so much on my plate right now between finishing up paleo principles and this AIP certified coach, um, practitioner training program that I'm putting together with Mickey and Angie from autoimmune wellness and still trying to keep up with the website and social media and, you know, parenting and, you know, other life commitments. And so my whole point this year was like, I need to just take this, take this whole thing, with a very, very big grain of salt. And, um, so I started and I just paced myself and I, um, you know, I 
would sort of string together 10 double unders and I put the rope down and catch my breath and then I would do another 10. And I ended up, you know, my coach never stopped me and I ended up finishing exactly nine rounds. Like I finished that last double under of the ninth round with like a second to spare on that 40 minute time cap. And it was for me that last workout, granted I couldn't walk for like (laughs) four days afterwards, but um, it was this, it was this really amazing feeling of accomplishment because I, I couldn't have even have thought about doing double unders in a workout a year ago. And so, um, and so it's been nice to just like just spend the last week kind of getting back into, you know, my regular, you know, strength programming and sort of normal, not such intense workouts and, you know, still trying to just recover and a lot of mobility last week. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's sort of nice. I feel like, okay, like I, I, I can move normally again. This is, this is a good thing. Well, that's awesome. I never got to be able to do double unders. So I can't imagine <laughs> having done that many in a workout. So it's, it's cool. It's cool that you found a way to make it work in your, in your lifestyle though. I think that's important for people to get. Yeah, I think, you know, I should emphasize, you know, I oft, one of the questions that I often get is like, you know, I've talked a lot about in the Paleo Approach and on the website about this negative health impact of intense, you know, strenuous exercise. And we have this body of scientific literature. I think we've talked about this in the podcast before um, that really shows detrimental effects to the immune system with exhaustive, intense, strenuous exercise. And um, CrossFit can be that, like it can be too much for people. And it's sort of one of the weird sort of wishy-washy parts of this is like the studies that we have that are showing these negative health impacts are from a lot of endurance athletes. So runners, marathoners, triathletes, cyclists, Ironman, um, and there's there's a little bit of stuff in high intensity in- interval training, which CrossFit sort of is, at least for like 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, is CrossFit too much? Well, it, it can be for some people. Um, so can a two mile jog. Like what is strenuous, intense and exhaustive is, I mean, endurance training definitely is more likely to be that, but within any sport, um, it's really dependent on your athletic history. And what really becomes a very, very important part of it is, um, recovery and, and, and getting enough sleep and fueling appropriately and managing psychological stress because exercise is a physical stress. Um, and, that balance and then also, you know, being listening to your body and, and not being a hero every single workout. And so one of the ways that I personally, actually two of the ways that I've personally achieved that balance, one is by switching to working with a personal trainer at my CrossFit gym. And so we've taken what is normally compressed into an hour long class and we've spread it out over an hour and a quarter. And it gives me more time for mobility, stretching. I get to rest a little bit between more between my sets when I'm lifting. Um, and I get to go in and say, I didn't sleep well last night. Um, I think I need to just keep my intensity down and, 
we'll you know look at what's programmed or we'll look at what milestone workouts I've been wanting to do and we'll just pick something that suits me for that day. So I get my workout in and it's always catered to what's appropriate for my body that day. And the other one is, have you seen the Aura Rings? I've heard you talk about the them, yeah. but I haven't tried one. So I've um, been using my Aura Ring for like four and a half months. Um, it's a really sophisticated biotracker. So um, it's because it's on the ring, the heart rate signal is about 100 times stronger than on the wrist. So it cannot, it gets heart rate, but it also gets pulse waveform. So from that, you can uh, calculate respiration rate, for example, you can get heart rate variability. Um, and then it also does movement with a 3D accelerometer, which is sort of the same as all the fitness trackers, but it also does skin temperature. And with those measurements, um, it gives you almost as accurate sleep stage data overnight as a hospital sleep study. And in fact, they're actually working with some labs to um, that are doing sleep research and they're going to start using the Aura Ring instead of doing sleep studies because it's you can sleep in your own bed. You're not covered in right all of the EEG probes um, and it gives you almost – the same data. So they've actually done studies showing that it's, it's incredibly accurate and, um, not very, there's not very many sleep trackers that can actually, um, claim that like there's like the act to watch two, which is a bajillion dollars. Um, and has also been used in some, some scientific settings. So there's not very many trackers that can actually really do a good job of tracking sleep. And one of the things that I, have really liked about this particular tracker is how good it is at, it gives you a readiness score every day. So it looks at your heart rate variability overnight, how much sleep you got, how much of that sleep was deep sleep and REM sleep. It looks at um, what time of night you had your lowest resting heart rate and what your lowest resting heart rate was in relation to your average. It looks at your body temperature. It looks at how active you were the day before. And it gives you you a recommendation for basically how hard you should go today. And so sometimes for me, I'm like at the gym before I even really know if I'm awake and, and I even have a good sense of how I feel. And I can really look at that score and it's always right. Like if I can look at that score and it says, Hey, you've got a score of 88. You should be going hard today. And I'll, I'll feel really sluggish and I'll get on the rower and the rower will be super energizing. I'll be like, oh yeah, like it is a great day to work out. Like it, even when I, I, you know, feel like I don't believe it, it turns out to be right. Um, so it's been a really phenomenal tool for me for, you know, because I'm a person who I have to be really proactive about my sleep. I mean, it was, trying to fix my own sleep. That was the reason why I wrote the go to bed online sleep program. Um, and so I have to, I'm one of those people who has to make all the right choices throughout the entire day in order to have good sleep at night. And, um, I have this like chronic battle with stress. Like stress is my, my, you know, demon that I'm like have to constantly overcome because I really have a hard time, trying to find that balance between all of I'm ambitious. So it's like all of the things that I want to do, all of the resources I want to create, you know, all the things I want to put in this book, you know, the deadlines I want, I arbitrarily set for myself, um, that I want to meet, but then also all of the things that I need to do for self-preservation because I'm a person with four autoimmune diseases. And, 
you know, I just like there's things that I have to do in order to be able to stay healthy and keep the wheels on the cart. And so the aura ring has been really in educating me in terms of um, that balance. So I can really look, I can look at, I look every day, how did I sleep last night? And I make my decisions on how hard I work out. Um, but also like, am I going to, um, you know, walk at my treadmill desk today? Am I going to stand at my stand, you know, and with the treadmill off today? Um, am I going to try and have a nap today? Like, um, how much do I need to try and how much time do I need to try and book off to meditate today? Like I make those kinds of types of decisions, how, how much I need it because I've got hard data to show me how important those things are going to be on any given day. So that's, um, I don't think I've talked about this on the show before, but it's, I, of all of the like cool little biohacker tools that I've ever tried, like amber tinted glasses, clearly I think are super important. And this has been like the coolest, the coolest thing in terms of, of the data that it's given me that's been actionable. Like I had a Fitbit for, I was for two years beforehand and I stopped wearing the Fitbit. Like I wore them both for a couple weeks because I wanted to compare what they were telling me. And it, it just became a no brainer to, to <laughs> you know, stop wearing the Fitbit and, and wear the, and wear the ring because it's actionable. It's really actionable information as opposed to a Fitbit, which was always much more just educational. How many steps did I walk today? Right? And that was, pretty much it and this is like you know it informs my decisions which I really like that was totally not what I expected we talk about today well I thought that what we would talk about today is a continuation of the uh, conversation that we had in the last podcast since we were rambling both of us <laughs> about <laughs> things that had nothing to do with food allergies and kids but I think the question that you know I get mo asked most often and the topic that we were really kind of addressing was first foods or how to address, um, you know, not introducing grains and dairy, given that the common introductory foods are uh, cereal and milk, uh, different things like that. And we could just maybe address that topic directly instead of indirectly. Yes, yeah, so we actually have another really great question that is so much like the follow-up to last week. I thought we should definitely just talk about first foods in general. Um, but I also want to answer Alexa's question because I think there's some like tangents on this that I think we didn't cover last week that would be really great to cover this week. Oh, you know, I love a tangent. Let's do it. Right. So Alexa says, hi, ladies. Thank you so much for all your work over the past few years. I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning and love your books. I'm wondering how to approach feeding my daughter solids when I have a number of food intolerances. I get an arthritis type reaction from nightshades, almonds, eggs, dairy, and gluten. I just want to like insert in here that those are like exactly my problem foods too. I just, Alexa and I are like food intolerance twins. All right. My husband has celiac disease. I understand how to 
to give one food at a time and wait to see if there's any reaction, but I'm concerned about whether or not I would detect a reaction. For me, when I eat those foods, I don't instantly break out or flare. My husband's gluten reactions aren't instant either. Is it safe to assume if they there isn't a skin reaction or noticeable digestive discomfort that a food is okay. How much of a connection is there between a parent's intolerances and their child's? Is it a high or low likelihood that I have passed these on to my daughter? My family, who are wheat farmers, voiced concerns that by not introducing her to gluten and dairy soon, that I may be setting her up for increased likelihood of reactions. What are your thoughts on how to proceed with this? Thank you for your tremendous wisdom. Well... How I've dealt with family members is just telling them to mind their own beeswax. Uh, <laughs> that's not entirely true. Um, so I think I think what is most important is that you recognize that when people ask questions, that it's likely coming from a place of care and concern, right? And so it's easy. Um, and I'll be the first to say that this has happened to me. It's easy to be frustrated and feeling like you're being judged. But I think it makes it go so much easier for me if I consider the context of someone asking that question and saying, okay, they're genuinely concerned because their livelihood is in wheat. They obviously believe in it. And, you know, they are concerned that the thing that they believe in is being withheld from someone that they love and care about. And so I think if you frame it like that and you share more from the perspective of, you know, you can include some of the references that we had last week about allergies, um, but also just to say, you know, given that your husband has celiac disease, that, you know, the best thing to do for a family member that has that in their lineage is to avoid gluten, that that way there's nothing in wheat that is necessary from a nutrient perspective. There's not a single nutrient in it that you can't get somewhere else. And so the risk is just more uh, like not worth it to you for the benefit because there really is no benefit other than delicious things I shall not name that we cannot eat. And um, the, the risk is, you know, cancer or, you know, digestive dysregulation and a myriad of other things that can come from celiac and, and gluten intolerance. So I think if you explain it to them like that, I know my dad started to being able to understand it more when I started talking to him about how um, severe my mom's allergy was and how that's genetically passed down. And so while he might not see that there's an immediate reaction in us, there are a lot of studies available. And I shared some with him about how people who have celiac disease who don't um, abstain entirely from gluten their whole life are um, highly likely to get in intestinal cancer and stuff like that. And so I think it was, you know, that helped him understand how important it was rather than just feeling like we were denying our kids pancakes or whatever. And then, then it became an option of, but dad, when they stay with you, you're more than welcome to make them gluten-free Bisquick or Trader Joe's has frozen pancakes that, that are gluten-free or whatever you want to do, you know, here's how we can bend the rules so that it fits within, you know, kind of a, a blended family approach. Um, and I think that also helped, you know, take the edge off. So let me back up and address the actual like detecting of food intolerance and this idea of, 
introducing first foods one by one to be watchful for allergies. So, you know, the general recommendation is to wait until five to six months old to introduce solids and really you know, the gastrointestinal tract is maturing substantially at that point. And, you know, right around that six month mark is where, you know, the, the baby's GI tract is, is ready to start digesting solid foods. Um, and then the general recommendation, which I think is very smart, is to do one food every four to seven days. Um, and definitely on the longer side, if you're coming from a, a family with substantial, you know, substantial history of allergies. And the symptoms that are um, usually, you know, listed in like pediatrician, you know, handouts and and those types of, of things are very allergy-focused symptoms. So hives, welts, flushed skin, rashes, swelling of face, tongue, lip, right? These are all sort of like anaphylaxis-type reactions, but also vomiting, diarrhea, unconsolable crying, coughing, wheezing, difficulty breathing, loss of consciousness. But they're very, you know, when you look at that list, it's very histamine-driven. Um, you know, when we start to expand beyond allergies and think about intolerances and sensitivities, we start to expand that list of symptoms. And so if I was to read to you, like, I will actually, I'll read to you the list of symptoms that are um, part of the AIP reintroduction protocol. So these are the symptoms to watch out for because these are symptoms of not just food allergy, but food intolerance or food sensitivity. So um, any kind of gastrointestinal symptom, tummy ache, changes in bowel habits, heartburn, nausea, constipation, diarrhea, increased or decreased frequency of bowel movements, gas bloating, undigested or partly digested food particles in the stool, though keep in mind that for babies that can be quite normal, uh, reduced energy, fatigue, energy dips in the afternoon, food cravings for sugar, fat, or a desire for caffeine, pica, which is a craving for minerals from non-food items like clay or dirt, Trouble sleeping, either falling asleep or staying asleep or just not feeling rested in the morning. Headaches, dizziness or lightheadedness. Increased mucus production, phlegm, runny nose, postnasal drip. Coughing or an increased need to clear your throat. Itchy eyes or mouth, sneezing. Aches and pains, muscle joint, tendon or ligament. Changes in skin, so that's not just rashes or, or welts, but also acne, dry skin. Um, little pink um, bumps like uh, keratosis pilaris, dry hair or dry nails, and any kind of mood issues. Now, reading a lot of that into a baby's behavior can be really tough because teething, <laughs> um, you know, babies can – sometimes you just can't figure out why they're crying. But I would definitely sort of think about that expanded list. So take this list of like – allergies to watch for, but also watch for um, sleep disturbances, waking up more at night, not having as long a nap as normal, um, any kind of um, changes to stool quality um, or frequency, um, and any kind of, you know, being upset. You know, like sometimes it's sort of hard to tell if a baby has a tummy ache or if a baby's gassy. Sometimes it's really obvious, but um, but you know, if, if you can't really figure out what the crying is and it's unusual, um, that's a really, a really good sign that at least something's going on and it may or may not be related to food. But I think that, you know, I, I definitely took time introducing foods to both of my girls and I, I think that just makes sense. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's hard to tell, especially 
when it's a delayed reaction. I mean, and it's one of the reasons why they recommend waiting four to seven days to test each food for, for first foods for babies. And that's the same time scale as you would do for food intolerances or sensitivities for adults. Um, cause it, these, a lot of these reactions can be delayed. And I think at some point you make your best guess. If you're not sure, um, I think it makes sense to avoid a food and maybe try it again later. Um, and, you know, cut yourself some slack because you're trying to basically, um, you know, interpret the communication of, of a young baby and you just, you know, do the best you can at that point. Um, I definitely think that it makes sense to, um, do the, the very stereotypical avoiding of high allergy foods until one. So that's usually, um, berries, tomatoes, nuts, shellfish, citrus, and, egg whites, although egg whites, they might say nine months old now. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, and you know, from there, you know, I think we, we sort of touched on it last week about, um, honing in on the more nutrient dense foods, because that's one of the best things that you can do is, um, increase nutrient density, make sure your baby's getting all the nutrients they need. Um, so, you know, looking at things like, Stacey, I'm always impressed that you gave chicken liver as a first food for your kids. Um, Only but because th- the internet told me to. I mean, the internet sometimes gets it right. Well, yeah. And I, you know, you have to consider too, for me personally, I was following a lot of breastfeeding advice, which was associated with natural parenting, cloth diapering, baby led weaning. Like I was doing all of the country mom stuff, except like being paleo for a long time. And so I was already part of groups and and things like kellymom.com where women who couldn't breastfeed were being told to incorporate things like Weston A. Price Foundation formula that was made with, you know, raw goat's milk and liver. And so that translated into, you know, communities I was in for the same kind of people talking about good first foods, high iron food, um, the texture as far as compared to other meat, um, different things like that just made it kind of obvious to me that I was like, oh, this makes sense. I remember it's it's crumbly, like it's nutrient dense. I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't eat it. I was like, I wouldn't eat it, but I'll make it for my baby. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, how much we can still continue to grow as adults. <sighs> and now I eat chicken liver mousse and Cole looks at me like I'm crazy. Um, so another thing I kind of wanted to mention about first foods, though, um, you know, I think that we have this tendency, right? A lot of the conventional wisdom is to go for like fruits and vegetables first. And I certainly did that. Um, I mean, avocado was my second daughter's first food, but I, I really did kind of stick with fruits and vegetables. And I think I did like a full fat grass-fed yogurt very early on with my second daughter, the, the one who's totally sensitive to cow's milk. But, you know, I didn't know that at the time. Um, but um, but actually, you know, there's this sort of change in um, ideas because the protein in meat is much more easily digested than the protein in vegetables. And a high-quality meat has a lot of really healthy fats. And so there are some countries where the 
um, recommendations are to incorporate meat starting at like six or seven months and, and start um, having meat as, as a very early food as well. Um, and I wanted to mention that fat milk, uh, fat milk, yes, fat milk, um, that breast milk is very high in fat. So um, it's approximately 45 to 55% of the calories in breast milk comes from fat, 43% of which is saturated. I have these notes in front of me. I'm not just rattling all these numbers off the top of my head, by the way. Uh, I need that. Right. 37% is monounsaturated, um, including up to 7% being from natural trans fats like conjugated linoleic acid and 20% is polyunsaturated fat. So when you think of breast milk as being the perfect food for babies and then you start translating that to early foods, when you look at macronutrients, you can really start to – you can really make a sort of direct translation. And I think that when you stick with fruits and vegetables, you really actually are not – providing enough, you know, natural, healthy, quality, nutrient dense fats. So I think incorporating more meat, things like avocado, things like, um, you know, putting some olive oil or some ghee or some pastured lard, um, or some coconut oil, um, you know, incorporating some fats like that can be really good. Um, so there, uh, breast milk is also about, um, 40 to 55% carbohydrate and around 10% protein. Um, so, you know, having baby foods that are definitely vegetable based, but also incorporating some high quality fatty meats or some added fats, um, I think makes a lot of sense. That's what I did. That was that was part of the the recommendations I followed, and um, I will say too the other thing is just because something is recommended as a good first food, um, even if it's not one of the you know high probability allergies or something like that, if you see your kid reacting weird, follow your instincts. Like I remember when I gave Finn, I think it was might have been Cole actually one of them. Um, this is what happens when you get old and you have too many kids, but. Um, <laughs> I, when I gave one of them bananas for the first time, um, which was supposed to be one of the easiest and best foods, actually, it was totally cool because I remember he delayed for a really long time because he I kept trying foods with him and he wasn't ready yet. Um, but his whole face got red and rashy and um, he actually has stools changed and there was like a little bit of blood in the color of the stool changed. And I knew immediately I was like, this is a problem. Like (laughs) no more bananas for Cole. Um, And so bananas was not at all identified as one of those like risk item foods. But, you know, I think what a lot of people feel compelled to do is they read recommendations or people tell them to do certain things. And then they're like, well, this should work. Let me keep trying. Let me keep trying. And then that's where I think you'll really see issues. You know, I gave Cole like this one serving of banana. I immediately saw a reaction, you know, hours later and was like, oh, that's it. You know, like we're not going to mess with that. And a couple months later, when he saw me eating a banana and wanted to try one, I, you know, let him have one. And eventually he didn't have a reaction from it. Uh, But to this day, he does not like bananas. And I wonder if he has like a partial allergy or intolerance to them because he literally can't even smell it like smell them and be in the same room with them. He dislikes them so much. So it's, it's interesting, but I just say that because, you know, fo- follow your instincts, look at the child's reaction to foods the way, you know, 
not only what Sarah described, but there, there are a lot of different kind of symptoms, especially in young children, di- digestively and all that kind of stuff that you can, um, when you're changing diapers, you'll know what's going yes. on in your child's belly. So. Yeah, my, um, my kids had very different reactions to foods and a lot of, you know, a lot of my insight was sort of like, oh, that would be why this happened, right? Because we went paleo when they were five and two and they both had health issues that resolved with um, going paleo. So my oldest daughter had been chronically constipated and um, I I, from, she actually had very infrequent bowel movements even when she was 100% breastfed. And I'm pretty sure that was from um, me passing on all of that immune reaction in my breast milk. Um, but, uh, but, you know, she was able to, she had been on a full cap of Miralax a day, which is an adult level dose for like over two years. And within a month of going gluten-free, we were able to go off of that. And she, you know, she can do dairy. She can do some gluten-free grains. Like she, we eat paleo, but you know, for, for, um, you know, treats and, and, you know, birthday parties or whatever, like she can go pretty far off the paleo rails and be just fine as long as she's not eating gluten. Um, but when I think back to it, I mean, at the same time as I was introducing, um, like oat cereal, which would have been her first introduction to wheat or maybe like little bits of, of toast for her to chew on. That was the same time as I was like trying to ply her with fruits as a stool softener. And, you know, like, oh yeah, like there was clearly a direct reaction, but I, I, or a direct relationship, but I, I didn't recognize it at the time. Um, So that's definitely a like stool quality and stool frequency as a symptom. And then my youngest daughter actually had really bad acid reflux that was causing obstructive sleep apnea um, from both gluten and dairy. And that was, I mean, it just, she made funny breathing noises at night. Like it was the, I mean, if I didn't co-sleep, I don't even know if I would have necessarily known. Um, So that was sort of another I think more unusual thing. And it's, it took me a long time to draw the connection to food. Um, and I think, you know, knowing what I know now, it certainly would be easier. Like certainly now having, um, the more, much more in-depth knowledge of, um, how food actually impacts health. I think it would have, it would have helped me not, I'm trying not to feel mommy guilt about this, but, um, all this to say, you know, even if you're seeing a reaction that is not on those lists of reactions, like listen to your instincts um, because they're there and they're usually pretty good. All right. Well, I think we've tackled these topics. Maybe next week we could talk about older kids for a change. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I... Oh, you know what? Actually, we're supposed to have a special show next <gasps> week. We have a special guest next week. Ooh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I just, yeah. You just remembered? Yeah. So we will be back next week. Don't miss it. Sarah and I are both excited to talk about uh, good stuff with our special guest. Should we we drop a hint? Well, what if it falls through? Then people are going to get disappointed. No, but hints are so fun. Okay, go ahead. Holy cats. (laughs) That's my hint. 
we just it. we will keep it PG rated. Um, but <laughs> we might have to we might have to bleep. We might have to we might have to have Matt editing some words for us. <laughs> but yeah, we're super excited about our guest next week, and we hope that you will tune back in. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And as always, thank you for joining us on the Paleo View. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. I, I usually do mean what I say, so, you know, that's kind of kind of how I roll. Kind of a Say thing. what I mean and I mean what I say. Uh, wait a minute. Is that a Paul Simon song? I was, like, about to bust out music, <laughs> and I was like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. The thing that I keep in the back of my head, I know what I know. That's it. That's it. And I'll sing what I said. Is that the song? We come and we go. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it is. That's it. Oh, Paul Simon. That's got to be like at least 20 years old, if not 30. It's fine. Oh, it's totally, that song is like an earworm now, and I'm never going to get it out of my head. I'm going to hang up before you continue to sing it and put it in my head. I hope that you're able to fall asleep despite annoying songs stuck in your head. Oh, well, that's, that's an insult to Paul Simon. I'm sorry. No, Paul Simon's awesome. I love. I know. Paul Simon. I shouldn't have called. Have these super fond memories of like dancing around the kitchen with my mom to Paul Simon. Like it's like the first music that, or one of the first musics, because I think we also really bonded over our mutual love of um, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. But it was like one of like we both really liked the music, and it was like bridged the generational gap because a lot of the stuff that my parents listen to i didn't like and a lot of things i listen to they thought was just noise so i have i have great i have great great memories paul simon songs it never great, ceases the, to amaze me album. it never paul ceases Simon. to amaze me that despite talking to you for you know almost an hour every week how i never run out of geeky things for you to tell me about yourself <laughs> like Oh, there it is. There's another one. I got it. <laughs> I'm a deep I'm a deep deep well, Stacy. <laughs> That's deep the truth. Well. <laughs> yeah. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.